Hello and welcome to the Deep Roots Podcast. I'm Matt Bingham. I teach here at Oak Hill College. I'm joined here with my co-host Tim Ward, who also teaches here, and together we are joined by our faculty colleague, Dr. Sydney Tooth. Sydney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be here. Now, Sydney, yeah, you're choosing the topic that we're going to get into. Tell us what the topic is. Yes. Um, so hopefully we're going to be talking about eschatology, which we'll get into what that means in First and Second Thessalonians. Okay. Now, why that topic? Well, Tim, that is what I did my PhD research on, and um, I have not had much chance to talk about it during my time at Oak Hill, so I thought, Here we time go. to myself, We're on. better do it now. And everybody who's ever done a PhD is utterly convinced the topic they did is the most important topic in the whole world. That's what happens, isn't it? That's exactly how it works. Yeah. And where did you do your PhD? I did my PhD up in Edinburgh at the University of Edinburgh. Can I say that's the very best place in the world to do a PhD? Oh, it, All it the is. best people have yes, done this there. Absolutely. Great. Now, um, just tell us a bit about yourself because uh, you've been here at Oak Hill a year? A year, yeah. Yeah, I've been at Oak Hill a year. Um, I am not originally British, if you can't tell from my accent. So I grew up in Texas in the US. Um, studied part of my undergrad degree there, came on a study abroad to St. Andrews in Scotland. And um, if you've ever been to St. Andrews, it sort of captures your heart and never lets you go. So I stayed in Scotland. And freezes you to the spot. Freezes you, yeah. So various ways it keeps you there. Um, uh, did my undergrad in St. Andrews and then did a year with UCCF doing their relay program. Mm. Um met my Scottish husband and went on to do my master's and PhD and have just stayed forever. Fantastic. We're very glad you have. And drag your Scottish husband down here to the deep south. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Dragged him down. We're, we're glad he's come. First off, if anybody's just scrambling for the dictionary, eschatology. Yes. Eschatology um, has to do with end times things. Um, so it's from the Greek eschatos, which just means the end. So what does end times things mean? Things like when Jesus returns, um, final judgment, the ultimate destination of Christians and non-Christians as well. So all those sorts of things are covered by eschatology. So your PhD was on eschatology and Thessalonian, Thessalonians, but um, more specific than that, what was the... Where did you focus sure. that research? <clears throat> so one of the reasons I wanted to get into eschatology in First and Second Thessalonians was actually started back in my undergrad um, when I was in charge of leading a student Bible study. And for some reason that I still to this day can't remember, I decided First and Second Thessalonians would be a great thing to go through in a student Bible study. And I would be leading these. And so... Um, week on week prepared, you know, First Thessalonians, not too bad. Get to Second Thessalonians, chapter one, it's okay. Chapter two comes and everything <laughs> fell apart <laughs> and I had no idea what I was doing. And so that, that was my sort of Cause first... Because yeah. for those who don't, don't have instant recall, there's some tough stuff sure, in chapter two, yeah, right? Yeah, there's a lot of really mysterious figures and no one really knows what to do with it. And honestly, there's really not... There certainly... When I was looking through it, there was not much lay-level help for it. And I would say probably even today there's not much either. So Okay, I actually had I had a crafty look in a couple of my Thessalonians commentaries this morning. And 
there's a section in chapter two of Two Thessalonians where I was gratified to find, you probably know this, a footnote uh, from Augustine in the City of God yes. where he goes, I have no idea yep. what this is about. Yep. And if he doesn't know, what hope the rest of us? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you're in this bi- student Bible study and it's not going well in Two Thessalonians 2. Yep, yep. So I, I must have muddled my way through somehow and gotten something out of it. But um, when it came time to choose my topic for my PhD proposal, uh, my PhD supervisor had done some helpful work with me on it. And um, part of choosing a good research topic is figuring out what you do and don't want to read. And I knew I wanted to do Paul. And I knew I didn't want to do Romans and Galatians. And First and Second Thessalonians sounded good. And I had, in that background, my experience with it, wanting to really get to grips with it and understand it. So um, it feels like quite a biographical thing for me to continue with. Um, and I hope I understand it better now. Great. Have you, have you ever preached or taught through Thessalonians? I have not preached or taught through uh, Thessalonians. Uh, it, does, it does come up, though, doesn't it? It raises... Uh, particular issues, and is is it not the case that there's particular eschatological terms and concepts that only appear in the Thessalonian correspondence, or primarily show up there? A lot of the terms you'll find across the New Testament. Um, so there's one term, the parousia, which is just a Greek name for Jesus coming back, is how it um, gets used. That that shows up elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, one figure in second thessalonians 2 is called the restrainer and that is a unique figure in um the new testament and there's that's i think that's the one augustine says i must confess i have no idea who he who paul is referring to um there is also the man of lawlessness uh who usually people just equate with the antichrist but actually the term antichrist doesn't appear in thessalonians at all that's from the johannine epistles so Mm. yeah lots of stuff going on um i guess to answer your question what i did more specifically in my phd there's a lot of debate within scholarship but it seeps out into ministry as well about if these two letters are consistent because in First Thessalonians, sort of the tone you get from what Paul has to say about when Jesus comes back is it's going to be sudden, it's going to be a surprise, no one's going to know. And you get to Second Thessalonians, and Paul goes through these steps of things that happen before Jesus returns. And so the day of the Lord can't have happened because all these other things haven't happened either. And okay. so it's how do you reconcile the two of those Okay, so that's a fairly basic issue. Is, is scripture contradicting itself yeah. here? Mm-hmm. Um, h- help us into that. H- how, what's the way for someone to think that through? I think if you, if you come firstly with the theological conviction that scripture isn't contradictory, that gives you some good guidelines for working out things that look contradictory, actually. How do I bring those together? Um, in scholarship, I couldn't quite approach it that way but um Hmm. personally theologically that is something I wanted to work out for myself what was really helpful and what came out in my work is that if you look across the New Testament that same tension is found in other sections of the New Testament between the time of Jesus's return is unknown yeah yeah but here's signs ahead of it coming as well and so I I titled my thesis suddenness and signs because that is a tension in you'll find it in um, Matthew 
24, Mark 13, and some in Luke 21. There's some of it in Revelation. So in all these other sections that have bits about eschatology, that seems to be a common theme. And so for me, that really helped to bring the two letters together. Is They're like two sides of something you see elsewhere in the New Testament. Yeah, and, and is that tension between signs and suddenness, is that uh, tension primarily coming out where First uh, Thessalonians is kind of uh, leaning one way and Second Thessalonians leaning the other, or is it that also within First Thessalonians and within Second Thessalonians you see kind of both themes emerging? Um, yeah, they tend to lean one way or the other. So First Thessalonians does really, if you just take it on its own, it really does feel like it's going to be a really sudden thing. However, with the caveat that Paul doesn't actually say it's about to happen tomorrow or anything, he sort of he makes some statements about um, we who remain at his return, at his coming. Um, so he, in himself, feels that because he's the one, he's still alive, if Christ comes back while he's still alive, that's the camp he's going to be found in. But he doesn't specifically say at that point, well, it's going to be in five years and he's going to come back and this is exactly how it's going to be. Um Second Thessalonians, there in the background, there's some sort of issue among the Thessalonians about thinking that the day of the Lord has come. Mm. There's some sort of confusion about that. And so in that for that reason, Paul is then at pains to show why that can't have happened. Whereas in First Thessalonians, the focus is really on the hope of that future coming that it brings and so looking forward to that and I think that's where a lot of the tension comes it's just different pastoral aims of the two letters as well okay okay so getting a sense of the particular issue Paul is addressing mm-hmm. is gonna help us understand what his message is I mean could you spell out a bit more of that so in your understanding what what are the particularities of the pastoral issues he's addressing in each letter sure. and then help us a bit with the, what then he's trying to say about yeah that. Um, in First Thessalonians, in chapter 4, he talks about uh, not grieving like those who have no hope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And goes on to talk about sort of what happens to fellow Christians who have died before Jesus returns. Um, there, there's some debates about whether the Thessalonians actually knew about the resurrection of other believers, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because we're not sure how long Paul was actually with the Thessalonians, kind of teaching them how much doctrine he could have covered in that time. Uh, The book of Acts mentions that he taught in the synagogues in Thessalonica for three consecutive Sabbaths. That doesn't mean he was only there for three weeks, but he does. It seems like everything we have, he faced some opposition there had to leave really quite dramatically and quickly. And that leaves all sorts of questions for this really young, new community of Christians. Yeah. Among which is some questions about what happens, when's Jesus coming back, what happens to people who die before he comes back. Okay. So there's some sort of question about the fate of those who have died. And so it's a very, it's a letter seeking to provide comfort to grieving Christians Mm. and which is usually uh, that tends to be the context chapter four gets preached in is often either funerals or you'll see it on headstones or things like that it is an incredibly comforting passage 
that's not the goal of Second Thessalonians as much. There's some different stuff going on there. Okay, so just just help us a bit there. If that's the kind of situation Paul's speaking into, I mean, I'm picking up that you're saying we probably can't know with total certainty what the particular concern of the Christians is in One Thessalonians, but you sort of sketched out this general area. Yeah, I think I think we can know enough to say it's something to do with right. what happens to Christians who have died and what does that how do we live our lives in light of that. And so what is Paul basically wanting to say to them eschatologically? Yes. Um he I think he says two things. I think he says for those who have died there is hope because they're going to be resurrected on the day Jesus returns. Yeah. And anyone who's still alive will be transformed in that day too okay um, which goes with first corinthians 15 um so that's that's what he says in terms of comforting them i think he also lays down a challenge at that point in chapter five he talks about being on guard right so in light of the fact that jesus is coming back and it, it will be at a moment you kn- you don't know yeah. when he's coming back yeah, yeah live life in light of that stay awake be on guard um, it's the same verb that gets used in the Garden of Gethsemane for mm-hmm. when Jesus asks his disciples to keep watch. Yeah. Um, keep watch for Jesus coming back. Great. So that's one Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. Can you do the same thing for us with, sure. with letter number two? Yeah. What What do we know about mm-hmm. what's going on among these folks and how does that explain what Paul says that feels a bit different? Absolutely, to, yeah. Um, to in 2 Thessalonians... Uh, there is a very strong presence of they're facing some sort of persecution. You get that in chapter one. Uh-huh. Um, the language used there is of trials, tribulations. They, they're they definitely being opposed. It seems there's hints of that in First Thessalonians. It seems to have gotten worse since then. Um, so I think most people see that as fellow countrymen who aren't believers either verbally persecuting or or keeping them out of public space. There's something going on there where they're feeling pressure and feeling, um, I think, probably lacking some confidence in their faith because Paul then goes on to just affirm them of God's ultimate judgment, um, mm-hmm. that it's guaranteed and that um, there's this really great line where he does some wordplay where he's like, those who are afflicting you, will be afflicted and you who are afflicted will receive rest. Okay. Yeah. So that's part of it is whatever's happened, which probably was why Paul had to leave so suddenly in the first place. It's just gotten worse for the Christians in Thessalonica. At the same time, in chapter two, Paul mentions some sort of rumor that has gone around and he's he seems to not know where it's come from, whether it's been a letter or a prophecy or something's happened where some people are thinking the day of the Lord has arrived. And it's hard to unpack that because what does it mean for someone to actually think the day of the Lord has come? Um, it's maybe helpful to talk about the day of the Lord as a term a little bit. It's, it's it. um, That's taken from uh, the Old Testament. The prophetic books talk about the day of the Lord uh, as a moment of God's intervention his rescue of his people and and a moment of judgment as well it has two sides to it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um paul 
uses that term really commonly in his letters when he talks about Jesus coming back. It's the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus. So some rumors gone around that the day of the Lord has come. And it's hard for a lot of people to understand how people could have believed that. But there's been a lot of work done about... Yeah, because... Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't seem like a... Have you ever come across a whole bunch of Christians who just go around going, the day, obviously the days of the Lord has already happened? Well, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, when you think about the history of, of the church and you think about... Uh, as, uh, as you often do. I, I often <laughs> sit and think and ponder such things. And um, when I'm, we you know, we should. And, uh, you know, eschatology, I mean, of course, has had this really potent hold on people, hasn't it? It always has been a subject of fascination and, and maybe some of speculation. Um, I don't know, maybe that's partly what Paul is responding to, because we, you know, we've seen whether uh, it's um, groups in the 19th century or more recently, uh, Harold Camping, if you're familiar with him in the United States, you know, so he actually no, help, help. predicted... It's ringing a slight bell, help me out. He uh, was, um, yeah, had, had a following in the United States, predicted that the end of the earth was going to happen, Christ would return on a particular date, made these prophecies, these predictions, and then when it didn't happen... Uh, there were all sorts of creative ways in which it was revised after the fact to say, well, actually, it, it did happen, but it was, um, you know, I'm not familiar with the details, but, but you know, okay. it would happen in a spiritual sense rather than a literal sense. Mm. And right, right, right. I think you, you always have these um, people who are fascinated uh, with eschatology and they find there's always ways to sort of retroactively say, well, actually, my prediction uh, did come true. This did happen. It wasn't the way you expected it to happen. Um, but it, it, it did. So, I mean, in some sense, it doesn't surprise me yeah, to think yeah. that in the first century there would be people who could um, come up with the idea that actually the day of the Lord has, has taken place, and I think we still see examples of that. And so Paul is then writing into that. Con- mm. Before we do, in terms of um, dating for these mm. epistles, uh, what's the kind of consensus view on uh, the gap between, and, and maybe that opens up, I mean, obviously... New Testament studies, there's lots of presuppositions in play sure. about authorship and, uh, and about uh, what, what the New Testament documents represent. Does that impact the dating and, and the gap between these two? And I mean, there's a whole. Yeah, and that confuses me because there. there's a commentary that I, I when I preached mm. through this, is a long time ago now. I still got the commentary on my shelf. I can remember finding it helpful. One, a maker in the. Is it yep. the New International Greek? I think he thinks two Thessalonians written before first, one Thessalonians. Yeah. Which gets slightly mind. He reverses them. He yep. does. Oh, yeah. in terms of okay. Yeah. Yeah, one is two, and two is one. Remember, uh-huh. remember uh-huh. that. <laughs> yeah, I think he's one of the only ones who does that. But um, okay, right. He does. Um, yes, this plays into why I wanted to look at the letters. Um, so, from a purely scholarly side of things, there's a huge debate about authorship. Um, everyone agrees Paul wrote First Thessalonians. That is not up for debate every once in a while someone tries to say he didn't but no one takes that so that's consensus and and i think most people think it's his first letter and possibly the first book of the new testament Mm. in terms of when it was written so um i think most people date it somewhere 49 to 50 a.d uh while he's in corinth on his visit to the his first visit to Corinth. Um, so he's in Corinth for 18 months after his sort of hectic journey through Thessalonica and Athens and then st- stays in Corinth. So most people think that's when he wrote First Thessalonians. Second uh, Thessalonians is possibly the most debated in terms of authorship 
among Pauline scholars in the sense that there is no clear consensus and it's pretty much half and half think Paul wrote it and half think he didn't. A lot of it's tied to eschatology. So a lot of it's tied into this idea that the two letters are contradictory. Right. The same person couldn't have, couldn't have consistently yes. believed both things. Yeah. Um, there's some other issues. There's some really close literary parallels between the two where he where there's literally identical phrasing and people think, oh, it's someone just copying what Paul said to make it look authentic. Um, some people say Second Thessalonians has a Which I've always felt like that... Whenever I come across that, that feels like the most desperate argument for people who want to hold on to Paul didn't write this. It's, it's, yeah, my argument for why Paul didn't write this is it sounds really like Paul. It <laughs> seems like a really bad argument. Yeah. Um, other, there's, other people say it has a different tone, so Second Thessalonians is harsher and more authoritarian. So those are the general arguments about it. And so... I didn't want to get fully into that in my thesis, but I did want to tackle the eschatology side of things and be kind of yeah. say, are these contradictory? Okay. Here's ways to bring them together. Um, so because of that, authorship, people, if they say if Paul didn't write it, it's quite late in the first century. Um, however, for scholars like me who think Paul did write it, most of us would say very quickly after First Thessalonians, so within the same... Some have said within weeks, um, some say maybe a few months down the line as news comes back to him because he sends Timothy off to visit them and um, Timothy comes back and says, well, things are really bad. You need to write another letter to deal with this. Um, so those who do think Paul wrote it, most of us would say within the same time frame. So they're possibly the two earliest letters we have. If they were written so close together, I think that can explain the similar phrasing to um yeah. where he's just he's got the same phrases in his mind um the tone can very easily be explained by a very a big crisis coming up I'm, i mean i certainly change my tone when i need to quickly deal with something um so yeah that's in terms of authorship that's sort of that's the main debates and and i i think most commentaries actually think both were written by paul um there's You'll find a few that don't agree, but for the most part, commentaries tend to have that. Yep. It's when you get into other scholarship that you find the debates. Okay, happening. so even among unbelieving scholars, yes, yeah. there's a consensus problem. Yeah. Paul, Paul yeah. Both. Okay, so this so this is really helpful. We we were into so the Thess one Thessalonians, Paul has a strong sense on Christ is coming, it'll be unexpected, and you'll and you'll say that's explicable by the particular pastoral issue he's addressing, mm -hmm. that there's just grief and concern over Christians who've died and Christ hasn't come back yet and what will happen to them. And he's, Is it that he's wanting, in 1 Thessalonians, is it that he's wanting to give them a sense of there's a certainty that he's coming back, he just is. It's going to be unexpected. But it is certain, is that kind of where he's, is that where he's kind of erring pastorally? I think so, yeah. I think he's really wanting to give them that certainty okay. and and hope in the midst right. of grief for Christ is coming back and, yep. and those who have died aren't going to miss out on that. Okay, great. Now we were, we got into the Day of the Lord and stuff really helpfully because we were, we were doing, doing the same kind of thinking but now in relation to two Thessalonians mm -hmm. and you're saying Paul sounds different on eschatology because it's a different situation. Mm -hmm. And I was finding that really interesting because 
I was kind of expecting someone. This this is a compliment, not a criticism. I was kind of expecting that someone who'd done a PhD on it would would finally explain to me who the restrainer is and what exactly their under- misunderstanding of the day of the Lord was. So I could now preach this with great confidence. And you're kind of saying, we sort of know the general territory, but but we don't Sure. Know. So t- take us back to what what they might they be misunderstanding mm-hmm. about the day of the Lord in the two Thessalonians situation. Yeah. So this is... I'm not sure everyone's going to agree with me on this. So this is this is my this is my own personal okay. thoughts on it. Um I think they took from 1 Thessalonians that there was a difference between the parousia, so Jesus is coming, yep. and the day of the Lord. And so say they saw the parousia as Jesus coming to save them. So parousia is this Greek word of translated coming, return yes. of Christ, that yeah, kind of thing. That's, Preparing. That's, yeah, that's yeah. it. Um, and so they see this term and they think that's when Jesus comes and saves us. And day of the Lord, because of the way it's talked about in First Thessalonians 5, is very centered on judgment. That's The whole passage is basically about on the day of the Lord, um, believers will not es- escape. Okay. And so a moment of judgment. And so... The reason I think that is because um, that is one way to take the day of the Lord from some of the prophets. It, it is in some of the prophets, it is solely about destruction, and so I, you could see how the Thessalonians could potentially misconstrue that. Or if someone decided they'd had a prophecy explaining First Thessalonians yep. to yep. mean that, um, because I think what he then does in Second Thessalonians is links the two completely together right so these Thessalonians in two Thessalonians they think is this right they're thinking something like well Perusia hasn't happened because we have not seen Christ return Perusia clearly not happened yes but have they is there something they're seeing that to them looks like an act of judgment from God so that's what I think um that has happened yeah that's what I think um and that's what a few very influential Scholars, th- so they started me well, off on that path, okay, and um, including influential um, scholars here present. Uh, <laughs> um, I a few articles point to some things that were happening in that region of the world, um, kind of in the forty-eight to fifty time frame. It, some ancient historians talk about that as particularly um, tragic years. Lots of earthquakes. And famine and a lot going on there's different events that could have happened that could have made someone think this is the day of the lord um i think um one reason people who don't think paul wrote it think it's quite late is they associate the destruction of the temple with that's the only thing i was wondering dramatic enough to be the end of the world yeah yeah however if you if you think to a very pressurized situation um, with people thinking about what's th- we're hoping in the day of the Lord and we're hoping in the Prusia and we're looking out for signs of it. Um, it is possible that something that we maybe, you know, thousands of years down the line think compared to everything else going on isn't that big a deal. It could have felt very, I'm going to use the phrase, apocalyptic, um, dramatic. It could have felt like that very easily to someone and i'm not saying all the thessalonians believed this but, yeah, but it could have been a big enough f- 
Yeah. Faction. Uh, well, and that happens group. all the time, doesn't it? Be- stuff happens and people think this is the end of the world. Well, and I, yeah, and I'm wondering too about the, the time and, and the distance and the, and the location, you know. So if, um, I mean, people point, oh, the destruction of the temple, obviously that's a huge event that is much discussed. But if I'm over in uh, that part of the world, in uh, Thessalonica, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's maybe it's not the case, but it's not obvious to me that that's going to be at the top of my radar in in the first century context. And maybe some more local event uh, would mean much more to me and to my family than this event happening sure. elsewhere. Yeah, I don't know. Is that is that? But you're saying there are people who who do want to link it in some way. Yeah, to some people want to link it the to the destruction of the temple. I think because there's like temple language happening in second in chapter two, um, talks about the man of lawlessness sitting in the temple, and yeah. so they associate that with um, Vespasian who goes in to destroys the temple, and so they see that as that. Okay, but you don't think you need to go there. I don't think you need Could to be go there. Just I think local stuff in Greece. Yeah, that's really helpfully clear on the kind of situation Paul may might be addressing just help us with how does that explain why he now in in terms of the solution he presents how does that explain how he sounds different from how he does in one thessalonians he emphasizes certainty and suddenness two thessalonians he starts talking about signs that you'll see beforehand why why does he give that different response to this different problem in the two thessalonians situation yeah i think i mean it think it has a lot to do with restraint to use the vocabulary of it is is, um giving some clear guidelines around these things have not happened and and at one point i think it's two verse five he says as i told you when i was with you this so i mean that's why some of it's just lost to us about what actually he said to them and and what happened i i can make my confident assertions but we don't ultimately know what previous knowledge he's yep. drawing on. And so some of it is just, he's he's going back to, he. I'm sure he would have told them some about the end time scenario. So some of these figures, would they just would have known who he was talking about. Um, but he's he points back to them to be like, remember I told you these things. And so this, this rumor you're hearing doesn't line up with what I told you. Right. Okay. So think back to what I told you and hold on to that. Don't get don't get like off course from Okay. I don't know about you, Matt, the, this is really helpful. The kind of the kind of feel I'm getting is help me if this is all on the right kind of lines. Sounding like in one Thessalonians, it's a fairly basic issue they've got. People are dying. It is Jesus going to come back and make it all okay for them? Or are they, are they lost now? How do we know? It's, is that sense? It's kind of really basic. In 2 Thessalonians, they, they've gone beyond eschatology 101. They're, you know, they're doing kind of hyper-eschatology. They're making p- distinctions, whether well, there's a parousia, the appearing, and we don't think that has happened, but there's a thing the day of the Lord. They're kind of divining eschatology a bit more, thinking harder about it. And in order to deal with that kind of more detailed misunderstanding, Paul there just brings in a lot more detail Mm -hmm. about events you might want to look out for that just weren't needed. He didn't have to to talk about that to sort them out in the one Thessalonian situation. 
as I say, that's sounding quite, is that too simplistic or something like that? No, I think that's, I think that's a good summary. Um, I think I would just want to add to that, which I don't think I said is I still think there is a comfort aspect to second Thessalonians. I think, I think it's, I think he's writing to the majority who don't necessarily think the day of the Lord has happened, but have a lot of questions about it because there's this group saying the day of the Lord has happened. And so part of it is like refuting that claim. But I think in chapter one, he spends a while just reassuring them that they will be saved. They will be with Jesus. They will. And so I think compared to first Thessalonians, it's more about they will be your, your relatives, your friends who have died. They will be with you when Jesus comes. They are not lost. I think second Thessalonians is more about the day of the Lord hasn't happened and Jesus's return hasn't passed you, but it's, it's, it's not failed to show up. Okay. Right. They think it has passed them by because potentially some local event that was of great significance has got some of them saying, "Hey, maybe like this, judgments this was come, it. but salvation mm-hmm, hasn't." Mm-hmm. I think that I think that's okay. Right. And right. and presumably then Paul, through his messengers, he knows about this rumor. He yes. knows what they're thinking. He knows if there is a local event that's prompted this. He knows what it is, and he knows some of the detail. And now he's going to speak into it. Um, do you think that that, but but we don't know what he knows. Do you think that that gap between what he knows about their context and we don't know just reading the letter, do you think that helps explain some of why some of those passages in Second Thessalonians especially have proven so difficult and, and feel so obscure because we're only hearing kind of one side of the conversation as it were? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I am not surprised people struggle with Second Thessalonians in particular, I think it's a harder one to get from the historical into the theological takeaways. What does it mean for us today? I do think that's a harder jump for a lot of people okay. um, because it feels it feels obscure. A lot of us aren't comfortable with reading apocalyptic literature. Um, I think of. I don't know if this is the case across the board, but certainly the joke is about the book of Revelation that people only ever preach on the letters to the churches and nothing else in the book, or they only spend time on all the symbols and stuff. And so I think just generally we have a harder time with apocalyptic literature um, because we're not used to being taught how to read it. And so I think that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. I... A minute or two ago, I just uh, held you back from telling us more about the man of lawlessness. So, in the second letter, man of lawlessness and Douglas Strainer. Help us out. Yeah. Um, these are my best guesses because I, again, I think this is where the evidence points, but I'm not positive. Um, so, you think the restrainer, for me, I found a little easier. Um, I think. Paul is drawing on. Shall I, I read the oh, verse? Yeah, or do you know off by do you know um, do you know off by heart? Well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you probably do. Just being polite. So we're in probably because we're in some detail here. We're in so we're in two Thessalonians chapter two. And now you know what is holding him back. Let's talk about the man of lawlessness. What's holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time? For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. 
Um, so uh, that bit, what holds him back or the one who holds him back is the restrainer is how you translate the Greek yep. verb there. So the one who restrains and the restraining force um, are how to think of those. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of questions about what's happening there, who's holding back the man of lawlessness, who seems to be, I think, the way we think about an antichrist figure is probably accurate for that, even without using the terminology. Right. I think he's based on a... Sorry, I'm jumping back to the man of lawlessness. I think the man of lawlessness is based on a lot of Jewish history. So it's based in Daniel, um, the um, abomination of desolation right. sort of language, and, and this king who sets himself up against God and everyone. So back to... Uh, what's his name? Antiochus Epiphanes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, who who in um, kind of the time between the Old Testament and the New yep. Testament comes in and um, conquers Jerusalem. He's a um, Syrian ruler. Mm. Comes in, takes over Jerusalem, and yep. desecrates the temple. Yeah, yeah. So Daniel points forward to that. Um, we have some writings called the Maccabees that also talk yeah, about what happens there okay. and so, so he's the he's the sort of like art uh is archetype the right word that the, he's the, he's the original figure mm. who demonstrates this just absolute prideful yeah yeah setting himself up against god and then you have a roman general called pompey who comes in and similarly desecrates the temple in jerusalem um he is often referred to as the lawless one in some of okay. the Jewish writings. Is he the pig sacrificing guy? Have I got? I just someone I was reading went in a sacrifice, deliberate providing yes, sacrificed a pig yeah. on the altar in the temple. Yeah, one I should know one, that. But. Oh, well, I don't know who it is. But I, so it's yeah, this kind of character yeah, that people, these really of these people have done. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So again, this political ruler who comes in and um, yeah. just really desecrates. Right. The holy place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he he he'll get referred to with similar language from Daniel sometimes okay, as well. Okay, that's interesting. Um, then you move down the timeline, and one of the Roman emperors, Caligula, has this plan in the forties. He's not known as a nice guy, is he, Caligula? No. I, I'm get, I'm remembering that. Um, yeah, not a nice guy. Um, and he has this plan in right around thirty nine to forty A.D to go send a statue to Jerusalem that gets set up in the holy place, in the temple in Jerusalem. And there is great outrage over this among the Jewish Statue population. of himself? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Of himself, I think, in the style of portraying himself as Zeus. So portraying himself as God, set up in the temple, sounding a little familiar to Second Thessalonians here. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's I think what you have there is just this train of... These rulers who set themselves up against God and and desecrate what is holy. Right. So I think Paul's drawing on that language to point towards a sort of eschatological end time opponent of some sort. And okay. that's about as much as I think you can get there. But he's saying to the Thessalonians, that figure hasn't shown up and right. arrived. Right. I told you about that figure, he's not shown up. So that's that's the first thing. You haven't the man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed, is the language Paul uses. Um, he, he And he'll say, the mystery of lawlessness is still at work. So 
lawlessness happens and it's seen in this whole pattern across the centuries of people doing evil things. Yep. But the sort of central figure of lawlessness that's empowered by Satan himself hasn't appeared yet. Okay. So that's why it then turned it gets read as antichrist in the following centuries. Right. So okay, so if I'm putting the piece together, so even though these awful disasters have happened around you, which make you think the day of the Lord has happened and are worried that salvation, the appearing, has passed you by. No, salvation has not passed you by because final salvation will only come after this final man of lawlessness figure has come and... And been revealed, been like made obvious. Done his worst mm-hmm. and everybody knows what's happening. Yeah. That's that's kind of the argument, is it? From that's what Paul's wanting to say. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is where it gets hard for interpreting. Is I, I, I mean, honestly, I haven't quite worked out how best to talk about the man of lawlessness figure. I'm not. I'm I'm working on wrapping my head around how that, how we think about and talk about that today. But I think what I am confident about is that's the pattern Paul's pointing to: is right. prideful right. evil turned against God. Okay. Um, and he uses that as a, he, he uses that to say that will be defeated. The moment Jesus appears is the moment the man of lawlessness is killed. And so again, you get that hope right. coming yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I was talking about the restrainer and went on to the man of lawlessness. No, that's all good. But Paul also says the reason he's not appeared, this man of lawlessness, or he's not been revealed, is because he's been restrained by something. And that's, I think one commentary says there's like 10 different interpretations of who the restrainer is. Um, It was was very popular. Some of the early church fathers thought it was the Roman Empire. So the rule of the land, law and order, kept evil in check until this final moment. Um, so you do get a lot of that more common today. You've got to feel quite positively about the Roman Empire. Yes, well, yeah, yeah, that's, okay, part, yeah. Yeah, that's part You're of the problem. You're overlooking quite... Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, more common today is to actually see it as a supernatural, angelic figure. And that's rooted, if we go back to Daniel, it's rooted in some of what happens in Daniel in the same sections is um, you have different angels who are over different earthly empires. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the archangel Michael is over the nation of Israel. He's with the people of God. And in chapter 12, it says, um, when Michael arises, um, lawlessness such as has never been seen before and never will be seen again okay. comes. Yeah. But kind of at that moment, God's people will be saved and his enemies will be destroyed. And then you get a promise of resurrection at that point too. Mm. And that all feels very similar to what's happening across the Thessalonian letters. And so a lot of people will then say, actually, I think the restraining figure is probably Michael. And he is holding, he's he's God's agent to hold back the full expression of lawlessness until God's appointed moment. So God's in charge of it all but he's at some point michael's going to be he's going to remove himself or god's going to remove him from the scene and and the final drama is all going to play out that 
that's a fascinating spiritual perspective on the world now, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And um, just Sydney, you mentioned kind of history of interpretation of this. This has obviously generated all sorts of um, speculative, uh, exegetical solutions to this problem. I just wonder, as you as you think about that, and you think about what New Testament scholars are doing today, to what extent do you think? I mean, is this is this one of these things where um, can two Thessalonians two sort of um, solve the the problem, or are a lot of these differing exegetical interpretations are they coming out of um, other presuppositions people bring to the text, larger kind of hermeneutical ways of thinking about eschatology and and how the Bible fits together? Um, in other words, do you think if if we're going to understand this, is you know can we can we just sort of exegete the text on its own, and this is this is what Paul means, or or is it really a matter of um, larger questions about how we put our Bibles together and how we understand these bigger pieces of uh, theology and eschatology. It's a complex question, Matt. Um, I think a lot of my experience is working with just pure historic people historically want to wanting to understand what did Paul mean exactly what did he mean and not then taking that next step to how do we move from that into preaching or teaching or exhortation? And I think that's that's kind of, I'm finding myself in a place of trying to make that next step off of, I've, I've done the historical work and then relating it to theology. Um, I think that's one of the things I really enjoyed Oak Hill is bringing the two together and being able to start thinking about, I think good historical work's incredibly important. And I think it's it's vital to be working at what influences could be behind this. How does that open up the text? What what might have been happening? But I don't think that's the end of the story for us either. And I think it's taking that step from here's exactly what Paul wrote into here's how it impacts us as Christians 2,000 years down the line. Um I feel like I didn't answer that mm. very fully. Well, and it's, you know, one of the things it raises to me is just ha- here, having this conversation, hearing you unpack different pieces of it. Um, here, you know, you reference the Augustine quote um, ab- about some of these questions. Uh, you recognize the one about I have no idea what this. I means. don't. Yeah, yeah. That, what, what, uh, you know, you, you're 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 confronted with this, and I'm just thinking um, if we're thinking about moving from kind of uh, historical questions. Okay, what did Paul mean in in, in when he wrote this? And now we're if we're thinking about preaching and we're thinking about teaching in the local church, it does raise the question, doesn't it? If I'm trying to proclaim God's word to God's people and I come to the text and and I'm I'm genuinely, despite my best prayerful efforts, oh, yeah. I'm I'm genuinely puzzled as as to what That's this means. Yeah. Uh, what do, what do I do with that? And how do I take that as a yeah. faithful herald it, when I'm not sure it, what I'm meant to be heralding? You could feel really unnerved yes. by something you're saying. Like yeah. I was going. To, I was planning to do a, a talk series for the church youth group through one and two Thessalonians, and I just assume that after my study, I'm going to have a good idea of who the man of lawlessness is, of who the restrainer is, of just precisely what the misunderstanding yeah. that Paul was addressing in each case was. And I thought I'd be able to get answer those questions in a few hours' uh, study and some good uses and good commentaries. And here is someone who spent years on a PhD on it going. Yeah, that could sound unnerving, couldn't it? 
Absolutely. And when it's you know, Thursday and Sunday's coming, this, this is a real existential moment. You, you preached through uh, First and Second Thessalonians, you say? A long or, time ago. Uh-huh. So don't ask, don't, don't ask <laughs> me to recall that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think this is where I, I accept my limitations as a human. And I, I think it's a really helpful exercise in remembering that God is bigger than us and his word is bigger than us yep. and and if if that's enough to take away from this i think that's a good start i think you can take some theological principles out of second thessalonians and i think when when i seek to teach it um i some key things i like to focus on is um just the message of peace across all three chapters mm-hmm. of it is there's a constant resting in the fact that god will make all things right in the end um, whether you're facing persecution, whether you're dealing with um, rumors of war and other things, or whether you're dealing with, in chapter three, um, church members who maybe aren't fully pulling their weight. and it, There's various things, but at every one of those chapters ends on a note of confidence in who God is and um, that he will make all things right, that evil will fully be defeated in the end and so those those for me are the like heartwarming refreshing takeaways and and i will be um speaking on second thessalonians very soon and when i come to do that that's what yeah i'm focusing on god's victory over evil god's peace now and ultimately those those are the takeaways whether you know exactly who these figures are i i ultimately do not think that matters. I think it's fun to think about if you have time, and but it's not something I would ever want someone to feel stressed or worried about. That's huge. That I find I find that hugely helpful. That resonates with something. Actually, Augustine says in um, in On Christian Teaching, addressing the question, why are there apparently obscure parts of the Bible? And he may well have had mm. this one in as an example in mind. And one of his answers is, it's to humble us. Mm. These are the things of God that are being spoken of here, and we will never fully understand. What I like about very much about just thinking of preaching and Bible studies in mind. What I like about what you, very much about what you just said is, you may not understand every detail, but that nevertheless there is a very clear message here about a very particular set of issues in our lives that we can address and can speak into. From this, I f- yeah, I find that really helpful. Can I ask this? It, Having spent all this time in one or two Thessalonians, and you began by saying, look, some some people allege there's just a straight contradiction between them. Mm-hmm. One is, makes no mention of signs before the end, suddenly Jesus comes. The other is, here are the signs to watch for, so you'll know he's coming. And you I very helpfully said, well, if someone thinks that's a problem here, actually they've got a much bigger problem because that's an issue right across the New Testament. As you put all that together... As you, as a believer yourself, look into the future, what do you, where do you want sort of the centre of gravity to be for you? Is it, I'm not, I'm not reading the times, I'm not looking for signs, it'll come any, he'll come any moment. Or is there a sense of, no, I know it can't be yet because such and such hasn't happened. How, so how do, you, how do you locate yourself just as a believer yourself in that? Yeah, I guess for me personally... Um I almost want to say both. Like there is, 
there's a really good helpful reminder that the Lord is coming back and that that impacts every single decision I make every single day um and I and I'm to keep watch and behave in line with my faith and and that's that's a really helpful grounding thing that I do think about a lot um I I think having studied this a lot I'm I'm quite happy to leave it to God's timing I think the danger is becoming almost complacent and well he's not come for 2,000 years so probably not going to happen anytime soon so I think for me it's probably a better reminder of he is coming and that makes a difference every day Hmm. great thank you very much any more questions yeah I think I mean I think it's it's interesting there's that tension between um he's he's coming soon it it could come at any moment um but there's these I mean there's that tension and the other tension that this conversation raises for me is um uh, again, it's so we have these passages, we have these references. Um, there, there's some difficult things in here. Um, greater interpreters than any of us have found them difficult. Uh, Peter says that some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. Right? We've got that on the one hand, and I think there's. It's interesting because you, you find yourself sometimes uh, in talking to people in, in church stuck a little bit between wanting to emphasize that and say, "Hey, you know what." This is hard. We probably won't understand it. There's more here. This is deeper than we're ever going to go in this life. On the other hand, you find yourself wanting to uh, encourage people. To, we, but we should be thinking deeply about God and the things of God. And mm-hmm. and and these verses about the the, the lawless one being revealed are, are every bit as inspired as as passages with which we're more familiar. And um, people like yourself are spending lots of time and energy trying to uh, think about this and and think deeply about this. And so. Finding that tension between, on the one hand, saying, hey, um, there's a sense in which, you know, you don't need to be uh, losing sleep if you can't put all the dots together perfectly. On the other hand, not wanting to suggest to people, hey, yeah. you don't need to worry about this. It's crazy. Don't, you know, don't pay it any mind. You don't, <laughs> Nobody and, knows. And living in, yeah, 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 and striking that balance, I think, is is, is tricky, but... Um, what is this, that famous quote, and I can't remember who it's from, and I think he was talking about John's Gospel, but I think it applies as much today, of God's word is sh- shallow enough for a duck to paddle in, but deep enough for, or shallow enough for a duck to walk in, but deep enough for an elephant to wade in, and that, that you can always get more out of it, but it also, yeah, whatever level you're at. That's a helpful quote. Gre- yeah. Is it Gregory the first one? Gregory Great, is he the first one on that? You know, I, I've heard that. Lamb paddling, that I've, I've heard so that attributed to different people. I've heard it with different animals. Sometimes it's a. There you um, go. The it, sentiment's there. It's a mix and match <laughs> quote. You get yeah. big animal, little animal. <laughs> Excellent. Final thing. Uh, for folks in ministry, top commentary tips on Thessalonian letters. This is a popular level. I'm going to throw in John Stott's BST. I think that's. I haven't spent much time with that one, so I, I'm not sure. He just. He, Obviously, the stuff he doesn't get into, but he just packs so much into that. That's hugely helpful. It's a great one, I think. Yeah. Um, Nijay Gupta has a recent one uh, uh, in the... Uh, who was that? Nijay Gupta. Okay. Um, uh, in the... I think it's called the New Covenant Commentary Series, um, which is, is at a lay level, yep. um, but he's incredibly well-versed in Thessalonians. If if someone's wanting a more complex mm. but still overview, yep. Nijay Gupta also has what's called um, a 
critical introduction to First and Second Thessalonians by Zondervan. And okay. um, that is um, just an amazing resource that I've recommended to everyone who wants to get a view of what's been said on all these Fantastic. things. Do you need Greek to understand that? Uh, there are sections of Greek, but most of it you don't need Greek. Great. So um, that's sort of a next step up from... Brilliant. Thanks, Sydney. That was really fascinating. Just hugely helpful on some real historical details, but showing how we need to think about those and how building on that we get to some real sort of pastoral, practical conclusions too, and helping us steer through what we know and what we don't know. Um, we trust that uh, this uh, Deep Roots podcast has been a blessing to you, and we'll be back in a month's time. See you then. Bye.